CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400, 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham here with my co-host Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. And as the late Howard Smith would say, Howard Smith just passed away, my first boss at the Buffalo News, the guy who hired me and brought me in from Las Vegas to cover UB Sports in the beginning and then put me on the Sabres beat in 2000 or 2001 thereabouts. But the late Howard Smith used to call them bips and bops. And that time of year when you are uh, putting together notebooks and this and that because your teams aren't in full swing, uh, that is the season that we're in right now uh, for Buffalo sports. Uh, the Buffalo Bills schedule just came out last night, which is kind of a traditional uh, milepost, I guess, in the offseason, meaning it's time for everybody to take a breath. We've made it through free agency and the combine and the draft. And now everybody has to worry about their voluntary workouts and their mandatory mini camp. And uh, we get to uh, ease on into the summer uh, until St. John Fisher at the end of July. And then of course the Sabres, uh, not too much going to be going on there. Uh, maybe some free agency stuff, of course, and then the draft, but time for everybody to just kind of pay attention to the bips and the bops. He also used to call it sexy chit chat. If you could ever come up with some sexy chit chat when things were slow. That should be the uh, but, new tagline of this podcast. But that's Howard Smith uh, passed away uh, recently. He had uh, skin cancer that, uh, that spread uh, tough boss, but one of my favorites, a, a great guy. Uh, always, always uh, not everybody on the staff agreed, but at least uh, he was, he was a, usually a pleasure uh, to deal with. And from what I understand, I guess I'll give a little ode to, to Howard. Um, How, Howard had a temper and used to be uh, highly volatile in the office and, and to, need, to the point where uh, his cubicle had special walls around it. Uh, he didn't have an office along the glass. Uh, so he was a, in a cubicle out with many of the other uh, department editors where they would be out with their section. Uh, and, uh, but he had built up around uh, to, to protect those from the other departments, whether it be features or the business section who were nearby to not have to listen to his, his tirades over the phone, whether it be against a, a PR person or one of his own staffers. But there was some rumors that maybe he had started taking some, some medication uh, shortly before I started at the Buffalo news. So I didn't get to witness that part of him, but um, those who did witness that side uh, of Howard Smith still look back on it uh, fondly. One of those, uh, you can laugh about it now type things, but 
um, he'll be missed uh, by the, by the people that he worked with. And he also was the managing editor of the Buffalo News. Uh, he uh, he was so well thought of there that he went from executive sports editor to managing editor uh, right before I left. Um, and uh, and then he finally retired uh, from that position. So worked his way up. You you had ex- experience with Howard Smith, didn't you, Jonah? Really, no. Uh, you know, he used to, as you know, he covered when the, he would go to the Buffalo Bills home games and be in the press box with the reporters covering him. So I interacted with him a bit in that setting. But I never had any meetings or interviews or introductions to him as editor of the Buffalo News. By the time I got in there, he he had since retired. Maybe at the very tail end when Steve Jones was the sports editor, actually. I think I did shake Howard's hand once or twice in that context. I know this is probably a topic that a lot of people may not care about because you don't know who we're talking about. You know, he's the executive sports editor of, of the Buffalo News. So I'll briefly just say, but you would see him in the press box. Unlike a lot of sports editors, he would be at the Bills games um, directing us, almost like air traffic control, all the different reporters. And one of the fame, infamous aspects about Howard Smith is at halftime, he would walk around to everybody. Mark Gaughan, Jerry Sullivan, Alan Wilson, myself, Amy Moritz, whoever was in the press box, and ask us what we're going to write about. And it would drive us all batshit crazy because there was still half a game to be played. Uh, and so the the running line was, I don't know, Howard, I, I'm thinking I'm going to write about the game. Uh, and that would uh, try to get him off your off your jock for a for 30 minutes anyway, and at least uh, until we can have an idea of who is even going to win the the damn thing. But uh, anyway, Howard Smith, uh, uh, rest in peace. Well, it's uh, interesting from my perspective, because those, I mean, my first years in the press box were around 2005, 2006. I would see this, you know, Howard Smith holding court and directing everybody. And I just believe that's the way it was, especially, you know, maybe with bigger newspapers that they sent the whole staff and the sports department just kind of took over the press box and the editor was telling everybody what to do. I've come to learn as the years go by that doesn't happen very often. I don't think I've seen anything quite like it since, although maybe it does happen in kind of a digital email, uh, different type of way. But you don't, you certainly don't see sports editors walking around running meetings and then turning the press box into a newsroom quite the way it seemed to be when I started. No, absolutely not. And when Keith McShay was the interim sports editor, he was also in the press box. However, he was there not to, uh, he, well, there was so much more to do because there was the internet aspect of things and the print edition of things. So when Howard Smith was doing it, you just had a newspaper that was going to come out the next morning. Keith McShay was in there because he needed to be able to talk to everybody or wanted to be able to talk to everybody directly and be there. So that way, if you had a question about, Hey, what do you need from me on this for the internet? You could, you know, lean over and talk to him rather than having to call the office. So for us, it was actually great that Keith was there. Not so great that Howard Smith was there. Um, But you know, that's, that was just uh, the changing times. Um, Got a few things I want to talk about in, uh, in Howard Smith's uh, sexy chit chat. Um, the bill schedule, of course, came out last night. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Um, I know, Jonah, you've been working on a story about Bandit's goalie, Matt Vince, uh, the Canisius College grad, uh, uh, who's uh, plays such an important position here as the uh, the Bandits are about to open their series against the Toronto Rock tonight at KeyBank Center. And you were at the game uh, that had robot umps. Uh, down at uh, uh, downtown against uh, with the Bisons and who'd they play? Does it matter who they played? The Syracuse Chiefs. I met the robots. 
and I watched the Bidens beat the Chiefs. Are they nice back. people? Well, it, these are people that run the robots, and they actually are not allowed to speak publicly, but, you know, privately, hi, hello, yeah, very nice people running things on computers and laptops in the press box. All right. Well, well, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But before we get into all that, I wanted to uh, address uh, the coverage uh, so far of uh, former Bills punter Matt Ariza. And uh, I am not at liberty to talk in too much depth because The Athletic is doing its own reporting and its own coverage uh, that has not been published uh, yet. Uh, and so I don't want to get too far uh, into that. I don't want to compromise anything that I'm working on or my colleagues or discussions that I've had uh, with uh, Arise's attorneys or the accuser's attorney uh, or materials and things that I have uh, and I've been able to review. Um, but I, I do want to, I think, comment at least on the coverage uh, so far, uh, which began a few days ago with Dan Wetzel, one of the, the greatest sports reporters uh, in the country, not just reporter, columnist. So I just say sports writer. He's He's at the top of the of the top. And uh, he wrote a story uh, that took a look at the transcripts of the district attorney office uh, with the accuser uh, who filed the civil suit against Matt Ariza and a couple of his teammates uh, for um, having um, group sex or a gang rape situation. Um with a 17-year-old who had been, uh, who was drunk. Uh, these are the accusations. This is, uh, you know, in the, in the court documents. It's been covered uh, extensively since this all came to light last summer, right before the bill season began. Uh, and uh, the transcript uh, from the district attorney's office, not released by the district attorney's office, uh, but by uh, Areza's uh, office, um, seems to indicate that the district attorney's office believes that Matt Ariza was not uh, present at the time of the alleged gang rape. Uh, and the coverage of that, and this is what I, I'm, I, I want to at least bring up for, for discussion, Dan Wetzel's coverage of that has turned into a little bit of a telephone game. And now other outlets are starting to do their own reporting. You know, the athletic has been, we've been having discussions about this for the past several days uh, and doing our own stuff. Uh, we we're being cautious, but a lot of people have extrapolated the bit of information from the transcript that states Matt Ariza wasn't there as fact. And we have now seen words like exonerated, vindicated, cleared. But what happened in the Yahoo story and has since been spread by aggregators who are picking up, you know, this report, Pro Football Talk has done it. Channel 4 has done it. You know, full disclosure, you know, everybody seems to have their own version of this is good news for Matt Ariza. Um but that's not entirely true. In fact, it's very fuzzy still, even with this transcript. In fact, it's fuzzier in some ways. Uh, and everybody seems to be forgetting that in the pretext phone call that Matt Ariza was recorded by San Diego police, he admitted to having sex with this girl on the side of the house. So uh, at best, it seems as though... Um, Matt Ariza 
perhaps didn't participate in a gang raid uh, based on what turns out to be, well, again, I don't want to compromise our coverage, but it's an eyewitness statement. This isn't the district attorney. Um, this hasn't been proven or anything. Uh, and also seems to contradict information that was previously given. Anyways, I, what I'm saying is, as there are people out there demanding apologies, apologize to Ariza, sign them to the roster, sign them to any roster. It doesn't have to be the Bills. Uh, he was railroaded. He has been exonerated. That's not true. And I think from a journalism standpoint, we need to be very careful and not as irresponsible as to just take one little bit of information, extrapolate it, and then in the course of the telephone game of other outlets not doing their own original research, interpreting interpreting even a little bit, and then it gets to be, again, to where in headlines it's exonerated or he wasn't there. No, an eyewitness says he wasn't there. We don't know if he was there or not, provably. Um, and that's why this civil suit is still ongoing. I, uh, anyways, that's just my way of saying the vernacular of this has been very misleading. And to me, if people are going to demand apologies be made to Matt Ariza, I still think it's important to note that he, at least on this recorded phone call, admitted to having sex with a drunk 17-year-old. So anyways, I just wanted to mention that. And I don't know what you have to add to that, Jonah, but, you know, feel free to say whatever you'd like. Well, but I'd say I'd say this story from the very beginning or from the its first breaking, which was a little less than a year ago. Or no, no, it was, it was right in the preseason. Anyways, it, it it took on a life of its own on Twitter, mostly, but social media and in the colloquial conversations, I think even more than it was in the media, I think met. Areza was kind of tried and convicted on Twitter almost immediately when some of these details came out in the initial lawsuit and the initial stories and the initial details. And uh, the bills were perceived as being really slow to act in coming to a conclusion on whether Matt Areza was guilty or innocent or deserved to be in the NFL, to be on an NFL roster. And they, the bills were much quicker in coming to any conclusion than the district attorney. And now it's it's well over a year since that case had been investigated and we're kind of finding out some of, if not all of the details or the conclusive details, more conclusion and more conclusive details than we knew before. Getting more towards maybe, you know, the end of the story. But it com it's come back around to where it's taken on a life of its own, I think, on Twitter and in the conversation among fans and the general people very much. And in forming opinions and drawing conclusions about the Bills and Matareza and the NFL. Pendulum and, swinging back. Exactly, exactly. Whereas from a media perspective, and I think any responsible media outlets and reporters and journalists like yourself and hopefully myself, you know, I haven't written a word about it, except for maybe, you know, a quick reference in a story when it was necessary. Nor but I. I haven't written a, a story specifically about this case. I've done none of my own reporting on this case, aside from the conversations we've had on this podcast, and that was mostly... Uh, interviewing our guest Florina and kind of getting her expert legal opinion. Oh, you mean ever? Things. I'm talking about regarding this these developments. Yeah, I haven't no, written a word yet, uh, but we are certainly reporting it. I mean, we are talking to both sides, and um, again, I don't, again, I, I I don't want to say too much because you know, I, I don't know that I'm at liberty to to speak for for anyone else here in this situation. But um, 
No, I'm sorry. I, I no, I just you. what I, what I mean is, unless you are doing the hard legwork of reporting the story and getting your own details and your own reporting, I mean, I I think it's best not to form opinions and not to express opinions and not to draw conclusions. It, this isn't like giving grades on the draft, or this isn't um, your immediate analysis to the schedule or your way too early predictions of whether Matareza will ever play in the NFL again or, or things like that. I think you let your own reporting and the court cases and the facts of the matter play themselves out before you have to write anything. And just to quickly clarify, maybe the, the organization that I'm involved with, what I believe uh, WIVB.com did in reporting on this was rely on reporting from our sister station in San Diego that we trust and hope is closer to the scene and was able to do their own reporting rather than aggregating from Yahoo or, or another outlet along with the Associated Press, which is the most trusted brand in news, even if it's not, even other trustworthy brands would kind of co-sign anything reported by the AP. So with WIVB.com, we use that content. I also sometimes work with the AP. So anything that I've been associated with has been that level of reporting. And I think that's just, I think I'm only underscoring your point in that, you know, I would be very careful as any sort of sports writer, journalist, media personality, of coming to any opinion or making any declarative statements about what these latest details mean for anybody involved in the case, unless you are really reporting it and really kind of an expert on these types of criminal justice stories, because at this point, it's really not a sports story. It's certainly favorable uh, for Matt Ariza. Um, is it definitive? No, but it's certainly favorable. There is at least one witness who is willing to say, uh, that he was not there at 1230 uh, or he had he was gone by 1230 uh, and that uh, time stamps on different recordings uh, indicate that the uh, the alleged crimes occurred uh, after Matt Ariza was no longer there. However, uh, the accuser's attorney uh, views information that Matt Ariza gave on pretext phone calls um, and again, I want to just say what a pretext phone call is. That is when um, the police have you call somebody, they're listening in on the call, and the goal is for the person they are with to get information out of somebody who's been accused of a crime. Pretext phone call. So on this pretext phone call, at least according to the accuser's attorney, Matt Ariza gives indication that he was there until the end of the party. So there are some discrepancies here still. Um, and I, I just I, I just think it's um, I, I was just found it strange that um, an eyewitness has said uh, that something happened and it all of a sudden became fact through this transcript. And I also just want to point out that even if the district attorney in this transcript um, says to somebody that he or she is interviewing, um, this is what we know. Uh, we know X, we know Y. These are not, I mean, we, you have only need to see one episode of Dateline to know that you're allowed to be lied to in these situations because it is a way for the, in, uh, the interviewer to get as much information out of you as possible. All right, we know this is the case. How can you defend this? How can you defend that? Well, they want you to help make the case. And if you can say, well, I can defend it because it's not true because I have this. So 
if the district attorney who did not release this transcript, it was subpoenaed and then uh, the audio was subpoenaed and then turned into a transcript by the uh, the uh, by a rises attorney. Um, can take a sentence or segments of sentences and say that, you know, what the DA's opinion or what the DA really thinks is also out of context, I think. Now, the, the DA may actually believe that, but we don't know that. The DA isn't telling us that. The DA was in a uh, interrogation slash interview, uh, and these things don't always see the light of day. And again, I, I don't, I don't want to say that that's exactly what happened, but as reporters, we need to take into consideration all of the possibilities of what this information is before we come to a conclusion of he didn't do it and he couldn't have done it. Well, guess what? As I said from the beginning of this, uh, at best, even if he didn't do this part of it, at best, he did not participate in a gang rape. I guess you get a gold star for that, but he he did admit to having sex with a drunk 17-year-old Um the other part I just want to mention real quick, and we'll move on. I, I've probably already said I mean, things that, you know, are, are you know, we're, we're getting into dicey territory here. Uh, but I, I'm trying to have a journalism discussion. But we did have Florina Altschiller on, uh, and she's been great. Uh, we've had her on twice uh, to talk about the Matariza case. And as she points out, in the state of California, if the alleged victim, uh, wait, let me walk it back. In the state of California, to prove that you have committed a crime against a minor, you have to prove that you did not know that the person was not 18. Uh, and according to this information that actually is favorable for Matariza, she apparently, according to several witnesses, was telling people she was 18. Okay, so that's in his favor. In the state of California, he's lucky. However, in other states, including New York, there is no defense for not knowing if somebody is underage. So she could have provided a forged passport and three different forms of ID and signed an affidavit uh, and a waiver. Uh, but if you're 17, you're, you're underage and you're in trouble. So it matteriza in different jurisdictions would be facing different things. And this is what NFL teams are going to have to weigh unless, unless, they're only looking at these headlines, which have been kind of taken out of context or maybe even blatantly taken out of context. If they see these headlines, they may say, all right, this Ariza guy didn't do it. Let's bring him in. But clearly they're going to be doing their own research. Anybody who brings in a punter, again, I don't think anybody's going to be so blinded by a punter that they're going to say, get this guy in here like they might uh, with uh, somebody else who who was uh, who, who had a questionable uh, background, uh, who plays a more important position. Um, I think it, I think every team is going to be doing its due diligence and thinking, is this worth it? Is it worth it to bring in a guy who has admitted, at least admitted to these things and on the rest of it, we're not entirely sure. And even if we do believe it, is it still, is it still a guy we're, is worth having on our roster and in our locker room? And I know that Matt Ariza, and his camp and a lot of people and a lot of fans out there believe that he deserves a second chance and he may yet, but as it stands right now with the reporting, I don't, I it's, it's uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's case closed. Let's put it that way.
Um, Jonah, let's let's talk about the Bills' schedule. Six primetime games. It sets a franchise record. Uh, They had five last year, so uh, they just keep getting uh, more and more coveted by these broadcast teams. Um, I don't know. Do you have just – first off, let me just say, we talked – on the last podcast about the wasted energy of mock drafts that is over the course of weeks and months that people do mock drafts, at least schedule release day is condensed into 48 hours of wasted energy. I don't know where, what's your general opinion on the people out there who are piecing together the schedule feverishly all day and riding on every little rumor on a schedule in which we've known since January the opponents and locations, with the exception of the one game, the, the game in London. I mean, it's not for me. It's not something I do or try to uh, get involved in or pay a lot of attention to, especially when you get to like 3, 4, 5 o'clock on schedule release day and it's only a few hours before the schedule is actually coming out and all these games are getting confirmed. And it's like, yeah, okay, cool. Schedule's coming out. Um, you know, as the information trickles out, especially when the NFL announces some of these games early, there is some intrigue and interest as to who gets what game. And I actually kind of like the way it's going with the NFL. I think they should lean into this a little more of announcing the high profile games in advance and slow releasing the schedule so that there can be some analysis of week one and the primetime games and the holiday games, and then maybe get into the full schedule analysis, almost like it's day three of the draft kind of thing. I mean, I don't, I don't like mock drafts too much, except maybe a little bit leading into the drafts, and I don't like mock draft season. And I don't like mock making the schedule too much. A lot of people get very into figuring out and making predictions and making predictions with certainty about whether the Bills will be in you know, the kickoff game or the Thanksgiving game, and they just know it. Um, but I also find it interesting because there's a lot of people that report schedule games and get it right from a journalistic standpoint, on schedule release day that don't get involved in reporting other aspects of the news. And especially with the NFL, so much of the NFL news is brokered through a very small number of national reporters. And there's a lot of local people and bloggers and even people that aren't journalists that get schedule information and put that out there. So I do find it kind of interesting how the flow of information goes on the schedule release day. But it's not, I don't consider it a national holiday like many people do. And I don't consider it quite so big of a news news story as many people do because we already know the teams they're playing, the locations, and the makeup of the schedule. It's only the dates. And the big thing, Micah Hyde said this before his charity game. He doesn't care at all about the schedule release because the schedule is just a schedule from the football standpoint. There's little variances between how, you know, the alignment might influence the record, but it's not a very important thing. You're not being surprised by anything the schedule puts out there from a competitive standpoint. It's more for the fans and planning weekends and trips and, and kind of how the the schedule fits to them that makes it intriguing. And that's what Micah Hyde said, is that he doesn't care about the schedule, but his his wife and his mother and his family are very much interested in schedule release day. And it is a bit of a fan, if not a holiday, or a, something that people look forward to, being able to put the dates on the calendar and then plan their fall six months ahead of time. Uh, the most interesting part to me is the end of the season, which is a gauntlet. Um, the Bills have uh, the Eagles, 
and the Chiefs in back-to-back weeks, weeks 12 and 14, with the buy in between, which I think is a very well-placed buy, not only because it's right before playing the Chiefs, uh, and that's obviously uh, a game with a lot of meaning, even if it's symbolic, uh, but could have huge implications in terms of playoff seeding. Um, and then the Cowboys at home, at the Chargers, home against the Patriots, and then at the Dolphins uh, to round out the season. Um I think that that is a – did I say all those right? I had them home and away. No. Let me go back. Uh, yeah, I had them right. Yeah, at Philadelphia, by at Kansas City, home against Dallas, on the road against the Chargers, home against the Patriots, at Miami, Week 18. Um, those are some big games. Uh, potentially uh, conference and division uh, impactful uh, games. Um, I don't know. Any any thoughts on the order, Jonah? Yeah, well, that's where I think the schedule analysis gets to be not too much, but I don't pay much attention to it because, you know, we don't know how the season's going to unfold, and we especially don't know how things are going to be at the end of the season compared to the beginning of the season. It's a lot easier to – forecast what the Jets and Aaron Rodgers are going to look like in their first game against the Bills than it is to try to figure out what the Cowboys and the Dolphins are going to look like at the very end of the season. And sometimes games that look very difficult turn out to be easier and games that you thought were easy games turn out to be harder as the season goes along and injuries and and teams that were contenders stop being contenders late in the season or things like that. And the Bills, I mean, the Bills were a much better team at the beginning of last season than they were at the end. So teams that caught them in the back end of the schedule, even though the Bills won a lot of those games, um, you know, did might have thought the Bills were a tougher opponent than they ended up being as things got into the later part of the season. That said, I do think, I mean, those have a difficult schedule by all the ratings and the teams that they play against, and they play a lot of the top teams. But I think the schedule lays out nicely for them in the fact that there's no back-to-back road games. There, there aren't too many points in the schedule where you can look at it and say the Bills might lose that as a schedule loss, whether it is you know, back-to-back long road trips or short turnarounds between games. They have those at various points in the schedule, but then they play a team like Tampa Bay that maybe you think that's not going to be a difficult game for the Bills. And some of their more difficult games against the Chiefs and the Bengals, they have longer uh, run-up of preparation before those games. The home opener against the Raiders, they have a short week, but you think you know, the Raiders maybe aren't the toughest opponent on the schedule, and the Bills usually play one of their best games of the year in the home opener year to year. So I think it's a it's a good schedule. The bye week's in the right place. And then, like I said earlier, from the fan standpoint, I think that's the thing that struck me the most is how unique and different this schedule is for the Bills fans and the spectators, that there's six primetime games and only six games at one o'clock. There's a number of four o'clock games and there's that. I have five games at one o'clock. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. I counted six, but you know, I don't know if that's for sure, but fewer than ever before is my point. And so that's, that's less than a third of the season from a week's perspective and a third, a full third of the season is primetime. And that's the maximum allowed. One thing I don't know, maybe you know, is that can the Bills be flexed into more primetime games than these six that they've already been given? I've lost track of all that shit. Yeah, but it, it changes the rhythm of the season in that Sunday at 1 o'clock is, 
you know, a minority schedule game now where it used to be. I mean, there were years where the Bills played 16 Sunday one o'clock games. And even yeah. recently when most of the games were Sunday one o'clock and there were a few primetime games, the number and of that's even with Tom Brady in the division. You know, you'd think that they'd, you know, crack out of the one o'clock role here or there with just somebody wanted to have an extra Tom Brady game uh, in prime time, but nope. Well, and, and a lot of people look at it from the football perspective of, well, the bills are a good team that the league wants in prime time and high television rating windows, which is the reason the schedule is the way it is. But from the fan experience perspective, there's the tailgating and the parties and the way you plan your weekend around games is going to be different than it's ever been more often than not on more weeks and the parking lot situation with the bills. It's going to be a different season than ever before from a fan perspective. Uh, you know, hopefully it's, it's, you know, just as enjoyable for everybody, but there's going to be little changes for a lot of people involved. Yeah, I was, uh, I, I actually didn't look at the schedule until right before we sat down uh, and did and, and hit the record button. I, I knew that the, I, I was interested in when the week 13 uh, or when the bye was uh, by week was, which is uh, week 13. And I found it to be interesting and probably favorable for the bills helps them rest up a little bit uh, for the home stretch. And somewhat um, chosen by the bills because they could have taken the bye week after the London game and opted not to do that. Wanted the later bye week and got what they had hoped for with that. Yeah. Uh, so they get, uh, Brian Dable in the New York Giants uh, right after the uh, game in London. That game is uh, in Orchard Park, at least. Um, Jonah, the Bandits uh, begin their playoffs tonight. I know that you've uh, been doing some uh, reporting on that. Uh, what, what can you tell us about it? Yeah, I got a feature story coming up uh, on the goaltender, Matt Vince, who's a Canisius College graduate, the all-time winningest goaltender in the National Cross League history, and now the Bandits franchise leader in wins over the past four seasons. Grew up over the border in St. Catharines as a Bills fan. Not a Sabres fan because he was a Montreal Canadiens, Patrick Watt fan, but a Bandits fan, a Bills fan, a Buffalo sports fan who's hoping to help the Bandits win their first championship in 15 years and then, in his words, you know, stick around and hope to see the Bills and the Sabres win championships and be part of a championship run in multiple sports. Um, but the interesting thing I've noticed covering the Bandits a bit more than than ever before this season, and I was at the playoff game last week and going to the playoff game tonight and other playoff games that may come along, is just some of the differences in this sport with this team. And I think some of it has to do with the it being a smaller league. It's a different dynamic than the NHL or the NFL. But the Bandits are a marquee franchise with top talent. They have the MVP. They have the best goaltender. The, maybe the greatest player in league history is the Bandits coach. They've won four championships in their history, but it's been 15 years. They have a championship drought as opposed to the Sabres playoff drought. And when you're around the team, you kind of feel that winner, bust, championship or nothing uh, feeling. And even in the fan base, the, the standard is high. The expectations are high. This is a team that's competing to win it all. And if they lose in the finals, as they've done three of the past five years, that would be considered you know, a major disappointment. And if they were happened to lose in this, East Division final series against Toronto, that would be an even greater disappointment. And some believe, Dane Smith says that he, he feels like the Bandits are the underdogs going into this series, even though they're the higher-seeded team with the home floor advantage. But Toronto was a higher-scoring team this season and was in first place for most of the season. And I guess around the lacrosse community, in the league, within the league, they're considered maybe the team to beat in this series. But the Bandits have that 
you know, championship history and championship. Matt Vince has won three championships with the Rochester franchise before, so they have that. Even though it's been a while since the Bandits have won, they have a lot of championship experience on the roster. Can you bet on National Lacrosse League as I fire up my fan? You know, I thought about that today because I was thinking about it in a different context. I don't know if you can. I don't gamble a lot myself, and I haven't seen much about it, and I don't know if you can or can't or where you would go and what the line would be. But I thought about that in the sense that the Bandits don't get as much media coverage as the other professional sports teams in town and even some smaller outlets and even like, you know, I think the Rochester Americans are getting a lot more media attention from Buffalo outlets and the Buffalo bandits are. And, you know, there's various reasons for that. They do get big crowds. They had 15,000 people at the last playoff game and probably have more tonight. But I think one of the reasons might be is because there isn't, there either is no gambling on the, the sport or it's not as prominent. It's harder to find where to gamble, no fantasy. And I think that might drive fan interest in the need for media coverage and the intensity of media coverage. But one thing before you, if you tell me you can bet on it, I do know this that- is, well, this is one place I'm at, I'm on uh, the FanDuel website here and they only have one lacrosse league and that's the premier lacrosse league. Uh, so no, uh, no bandits, so, no bandits versus rock capabilities. What, if you like lacrosse and you like gambling, I do know that the Seneca casino is a major sponsor and that I don't know if this is all tickets or some tickets or various promotion, but I've seen people that have done this. You can get tickets. They come with a free play at the casino afterwards. So that, that's kind of a nice night out for some people. If you go to the lacrosse game, the bandits, maybe they win. And then you go get your ticket paid for across the street at the casino. It seems like, to me, it seems like brilliant marketing. And then tell me about robot umps. How was it? How was your experience out there uh, at the Bison's game with, uh, with robots? Yeah, I was out there Tuesday night. So what I thought was a you know small bit of Buffalo baseball history, although there wasn't a very large crowd for this game, but it was the first game implementing the automated balls and strike system that is being used across AAA this season. But it was rolled out a few weeks late in the International League, and the, band, the Bisons were on the road for the first two weeks. So this was the first home series, the first home stand where the new technology is being used at Salem Field, which is not only the oldest AAA stadium, but the largest AAA stadium. Um, they have 18 or 12 cameras above the on the roof that are working together to create that automated strike zone. And there's two systems in place. It's going to be robot umps for three games out of the week and then a system where three games out of the week, umpires call the balls and strikes and the robot umps, the ABS technology can be used to challenge calls. And so that's what fans will notice the most in these Friday, Saturday, Sunday games tonight being the first time that'll be at Salem Field where you can see a player or a pitcher, a hitter or a pitcher or a catcher tap his head if he thinks the call is wrong. And then it goes up on the scoreboard, almost like you would see at a tennis match. And you can see if the ball was in the strike zone or not. And then, you know, the call gets reversed or the call stands. Whereas what I watched on Tuesday night, if you didn't know, you wouldn't realize that, you know, the umpire was making the calls. He gets the signal in an earpiece and he calls ball or strike. And it happened so instantaneously almost that for the fan experience aspect, you don't really notice a difference. You, what what you about on see, the, I'm sorry. What about on the bases, Jonah? From the players, or are you talking about the larger bases first? No, I mean like the running? first base oh. ump, second base ump, third base ump. Oh yeah, I mean the umps are all in their same normal spots and officiating the game in terms of plays at the plate and at bases and check swings and any other rule interpretations, foul balls on home runs, anything else that an umpire would do, um, they're doing, and they're also even calling the balls and the strikes. 
They're just, the decision-making has been taken out of it. The computer is telling the ump whether it's a ball or a strike. And I did read, uh, you know, I didn't get a chance to talk to an umpire, but I read an AP story that did where, you know, one thing the umpires have noticed is kind of they might see a strike and then the earpiece tells them it's a ball and you call the ball, but that's a little bit of a, you know, dissonance in your brain. You know, your eyes see one thing, your ears hear one thing. So the umps are learning how to manage that. And I, from talking to the Bisons players and the organization manager, Casey Kendall, about what they've experienced over the last few weeks, the players are finding that, um, you know, umpires had different strike zones, but they were all maybe a little larger than the computerized strike zone. And this is favoring the hitters. There's been more walks, more balls. And ultimately that when the pitchers have addressed more pitches across the plate and more hits and more scoring, because the true strike zone is maybe a little bit smaller and obviously more consistent than what you get from different umpires and, and pitchers that are able to manipulate umpires a little bit and throw a pitch that looks like a strike, but it's not a strike. Can't get away with that with the robot. The ball has to be over the plate. And that leads to, you know, more favorable situations for hitters and more scoring and more offense. Those catchers that can frame a pitch uh, or will become a little less valuable, but probably, uh, I don't know, can you, maybe they'll find a way that they can fool the machine. Uh, well, but I doubt it. In the challenge system, you know, you can do that a little bit because you can't challenge every call and you have to be sure about it. And there's some strategy involved. Um, you know, you have three strikes and you're out. And if you challenge three calls that you get wrong, then you don't have any challenges anymore. And I think teams will probably save it for high leverage situations later in the game and later in the count. But another thing is this isn't, this does seem like the future of major league baseball, but it's not there yet. And triple a players. Hope I'm looking to forward up. to it. I want it. Right. But for the players that are going through it right now, who hope to get called up or do get called up, they have to deal with a different set of rules. They have to get up to the majors and that catcher does have to frame the pitch and the pitcher might need to use a pitch. That's a ball in triple a, but he can get away with it and get a strike at the majors. Players are learning how to do that. I talked to one Witten Bernard, who's a Niagara University graduate. He played in the minors. He played in the majors a bit last year, and now he's with Buffalo. He's had experience with this system to when it was introduced in 2009 in the Independent Pacific Coast League or in the Independent Atlantic League, and he said it didn't work very well, and the hitters hated it because it would just be wrong. And he's talked about how the technology has gotten better and it's evolved, but it's different every year. And when it gets to the majors, the system might be slightly different. So players that have some experience with it, hopefully that can help them. But the baseball players are also dealing with the uncertainty in the gray area of a system that's evolving and, and changing from year to year and league to league. And, um, you know, within the same home series, they're, they're playing by one set of rules on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays, and a different set of rules on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And baseball players are creatures of routine, and that changes, you know, the way they approach the game. Hey, these are the things you have to put up with when you're making minimum wage. Finally, they got the big the raises yeah, yeah. now. These minor leaguers are making minimum wage. They're just going to have to deal with this stuff. Yep. Is there any talk uh, you mentioned uh, about the strike zone perhaps being a little too tight? Is there talk of recalibration on that to make it a little bit bigger? No talk that I heard. Only maybe talk amongst other reporters that and people that I had conversations with about maybe that is something to be looked at. And maybe that is where this goes, that if the strike zone is too tight right now, that, it, but it can be consistent and it isn't up to an umpire's eye and an umpire's interpretation of, you know, the letters and the knees and how, what is a strike because it is a little bit of a fuzzy definition in some ways, at least the way it, it's called. 
So when they get in more consistent strike zone with the ABS technology, then maybe it can be evaluated whether that needs to be recalibrated. And there's a lot of changes going on in baseball. I think many of them for the good, but the cumulative effect of changing so many things at once, um, you know, we want more scoring, we want more balls in play, we want more action. But at some point, does that get to be too much? Does it get to be too offensive? Is it the way it is in football where I think they've made the rules too much in favor of the offense and need to rein that back in? And baseball could get to that point at some point. But I didn't hear any talk that, you know, they've made any determination on that yet. I'm a big fan of it. Uh, You know, umpires drive me crazy with the arrogance and trying to show up players sometimes and granted some players do the opposite and you know, they, they have a tough job and, but there are some umpires that are just atrocious and uh, they're not good with balls and strikes. Some of them, and some of them are just dickheads. So I don't have any problem with uh, robot umps, perhaps uh, uh, chastening uh, the umpires who do have to work and, and police the game. You're still going to need, um, live officials in some way to make sure that the pitcher isn't taking, uh, you know, pine tar out there on his glove or a batter using uh, an aluminum uh, shillelagh. You know, there's all kinds of different things that uh, players are going to want to do to cheat. So you do need somebody there to police it and not a, a robot. Um, and there's the, the potential that the system malfunctions. Some Bison's talked about there were some glitches where the call was coming in a little late on some pitches in some games. And I could see a situation where the system either breaks or isn't reliable enough. And the umpires decide, Hey, the rest of this game is going to be officiated the old traditional way. So you still need skilled umpires that are able to do that. And actually one thing that I thought a lot about is this is the way it's going in AAA baseball. Now it's it's the rules in place and it seems to be the wave of the future in major league baseball. But you know, Little League Baseball and high school baseball and youth baseball, they don't have the means to put these cameras and computer systems up. So the game, I don't think it can be changed right down to the very grassroots level in this way. Maybe someday our iPhones can just stand out there and do it, but I don't think that technology exists to this day. And I think about that with a lot of sports. That I, I like it when the professional game is played very much the same way as it is at the youth and high school and lower levels. And this particular bit of technology and a lot of the technological innovations in baseball, you know, I don't think that's going to extrapolate to junior college and high school and little league and things like that. You know, maybe it gets to a point where the technology gets inexpensive, but it, it just seems like a quite a production um, to be able to, to do that. Um, you could always do the old wiffle ball way and just put a lawn chair uh, behind uh, home plate, no catcher. And if the ball hits the chair, uh, it's a strike. If it misses the chair, then it was a ball. Do you think there's an app that already exists where you can kind of just hold your phone behind the plate and it'll put a strike zone out there and do it for you? Because if no. not, we should, you know, maybe we should invent that. <laughs> yeah. I think research and development for something like that might cost a couple of dollars. But um, if we can find a, uh, a sugar daddy, uh, I'm all for it. Uh, Jonah, anything else you want to get to before we wrap it up? Bips and bops season here in Buffalo sports. I mean, bandits, bisons, right off the top, bills. Bills, we got to everything. Really nothing going on with the Sabres. We know they're going to draft. Sabres 13th in the draft. Amherst in the second round of the playoffs and some young Sabres prospects getting some playoff experience through that. And Alex Tuck 
J.J. Paterka, Devin Levi, a number of Sabres players, Peyton Krebs are playing in the World Championships. So the Sabres One of the most over. meaningless tournaments ever. I, I had to cover – well, I didn't cover the tournament, but I remember that being a thing when I – when I was covering the Sabres, you know, who's going to go play in the world championships. And it was like, who cares? I mean, these guys go over there and I think they like the camaraderie and, and, and skating on lines with other top players with different well, teams, but it's not exactly star studded. You're, you're missing some of the best players in the league. And even the ones who are still active or uh, the ones who are no longer playing in the Stanley cup postseason, uh, they opt out. So it's just a it's just a hockey tournament. Yeah, I, I think the covering the tournament and caring who wins or loses, unless you have some national pride involved with it, you know, it's not a major high stakes competition in that regard. I mean, it is a world championships, but I I concede your point there. I do think it matters along the margins in some ways. An example being last year with Dylan Cousins, he went to the world championships, kind of determined to take on a larger role, score more goals, and be more of a uh, line driver than he had been previously in his Buffalo Sabres career. And he was able to do that and have success in the international game. And then he brought that back and it carried over into his Sabres season. So I don't know if you'll see that from Alex Tuck, but I think there's some younger players who can get more expanded roles with their international teams. And that can allow them to develop their game and come back as better players with the Sabres. There's a long history of basketball players using USA basketball to kind of elevate their games, elevate their. Sure. Confidence. I mean, it's more shifts. It's high quality shifts. Uh, there's something on the line. It's really not it, They don't, I don't think that they're pissed off if they don't win the gold over there, but there is something on the line. It's, but there's, uh, but yeah, I get it. But. Well, if Alex yeah, Tuck no, I, wins I, a gold medal at the World Championships, I don't think there's going to be a news conference back in Buffalo. I don't think so either. I don't know, there might be, but I don't think so either. But <laughs> what, what if what if Devin Levi wins and he's the star goaltender at, at a young age and he? Well, that's it, that's it, different. Like that We're talking about now. young players. I, I get it, but a lot of times it's you know it, it's it's not that it's whoever they just try to get the best possible players over there, and regardless of age and all that stuff. I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. It's not uh, it's not a total waste of time. But uh, there's a reason that nobody is uh, vying for the television rights to this thing. Well, I'll tell you, as far as the uh, what's a total waste of time. It's probably on television somewhere, yeah. but I bet you I'm sure it's no there's no competition. for People the, are for watching. The I, I, I haven't watched the game. I, you might have to have a streaming app. And it's I think it's on at odd times. But let me ask you this. On the scale of what is a total waste of time or not to Tim Graham. PGA Championship in Rochester next week, not in Buffalo, but close enough. How, how interested are you in that sporting event? Not at all. <laughs> uh, I covered the I covered a women's uh, U.S. Open out there. Um, I covered that too, or at least one of the days. But especially with Tiger Woods not in it, I get it. It's passing through town. Um, but I, 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 it's it's weird, and I. You're talking to a guy who spent five years of his life covering big events that come through town. Um, that was what Vegas was. You didn't have, these weren't your people uh, until the, uh, until the Vegas golden Knights existed. Uh, the only thing that you had really was UNLV sports. And those even are athletes passing through town for a few years. They're generally not from Las Vegas, they're from Southern California or Texas or wherever. 
and they're there for four or five years playing sports. And so you're covering whatever's passing through uh, the Las Vegas Invitational, uh, the um, the golf tournament. It was Tiger Woods's first professional victory. In fact, I covered it, um, but it's just passing through a boxing event, passing through uh, Oscar De La Hoya. He's from Los Angeles, but he would fight a couple of times a year in Vegas, just passing through. And you just had this stuff and you'd come through and these people don't belong to your audience. Uh, they don't belong to Las Vegas, at least at the time I'm talking about. And so I get it that if you're from Western New York, uh, you're the Buffalo News, you're the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, the TV stations here, there that you want to cover this event, but it's just passing through. And these guys are going to be gone. Nobody's from here. I don't know. To me, it just doesn't it doesn't resonate as something to cover uh, locally. Uh, now you have to do it, I guess. Uh, or do you, I mean, I don't know if I'm the Buffalo news, do I need to cover something just because it's, I can drive to it. Um, mm, I don't know. Um, but I guess there's a, all right. So I can talk myself into this, your readers or your audience will be attending it, but how many people go to this? I mean, I got, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, um, how many people are going to go either. to the this event uh, from your audience compared to going to the Bandits game? Or do, should you be covering this over the Bandits game because it's a, a, a major? Well, it is a major championship. It's going to be on major television. I think that influences how things get covered. But I don't know the percentage or how many thousands of people from Buffalo will go to attend this. I think it'll be a high number. But it's being covered under the guise that there will be a lot of Buffalo people interested in going to this. And that's why it's a semi-local event because, you know, we don't have any golf courses in Buffalo that can host a major championship. And we do have one not that far away in Pittsburgh, New York, which is where the, you know, the bills have their training camp. So I think that it's, you know, it's being covered, I think as a fan experience and a novelty and something almost like when the NCAA tournament comes here, that uh, West New York and Buffalo does get to host a major sporting event every so often. But the actual golf and stories about the PGA golfers and things like that, I don't know how much local resonance there is. I myself am not covering it, but might be going one of the days just as a spectator. I'm a little bit interested in seeing how entertaining that is and whether it's a quote-unquote bucket list type uh, experience or not. I've covered the Porter Cup, which is a much smaller tournament, obviously, an amateur level, and it's not even a major amateur championship anymore. However, you do see – some of the very best college golfers and many of them end up being on the tour. Later I think quarter cups a little bit different because that is an, it's an historic event and it is here all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. In our I, it's not, it's not coming play. through once every 10 years, it's right. coming through every year and there is history and you do have the, the 40 year old, you know, or the local pro or so you do have a lot of, you know, different people coming into the Porter cup, not the 40, you know, you know, there's these, Oh, the mid amateurs. The mid amateurs. Right. That's what that's that's what yeah. I'm thinking. And you so, also have a senior porter cup and a women's porter cup. I mean, there is quite actually a lot more, I think, news stories. Not more, but local news stories. But I will say this, I always say this to people who have never been to the Porter Cup, but are golf fans. I say you should go because one, it's free to attend. You you only have to pay for parking. And two, you get to see some of the very best amateur golfers and many of the very best college golfers who end up being uh, tour professionals, the, the very, very top guys. The Tiger Woods did play in the Porter Cup, but the next generation of Tiger Woods tend to not play.
play in this tournament anymore, but you see the guys ranked a little bit below the top five. But anyways, you see very good golfers playing a course that you might have played or you could walk around on another occasion and see in your backyard, and you get right up close. You can be as close as you want, especially on the early days, to watching somebody who might be a tour professional that you see on TV years later, and you can say, hey, I saw that guy blast it out of the sand or do a certain thing on the golf course with your own eyes from you know, a normal distance. And I think in a major championship on a major course, it's a lot harder to get that close access. But at the Porter Cup, if you just love golf and watching very good golfers play, you get a good experience of that and don't have to pay for a ticket. Yeah, I think that's a little different than than what's than the U.S. Open out in in Rochester. Uh, in, in that it is a local event and there's a pride and this is our thing that we do and we put this on every year. You know, and the people who are really into Western golf in, in our area, I, I mean, I, that's, I get it a little more. So um, I still, but you're, you're, it's hard to get people interested in um, people. They don't necessarily know. I mean, you even see it with Bison's coverage. It's hard. And these guys play dozens and dozens and dozens of games. And maybe they were with the team last year. May hell, maybe they've been with the team for three years or the manager or whatever, and these names, and people still don't care because they're not from here. Um, they're just passing through, or at least that's what they're supposed to be doing if they're good. They're just supposed to be passing through Buffalo on the way to the major leagues. Um, so, again, I, I think it's diff- it's a difficult uh, – It's it, it's they're difficult to cover as a regular event. You almost have to find the issues or you have to find deeper features on these on what's happening than just covering – the news of the day, uh, because anybody can do that. And that goes with the NCAA tournament passing through, uh, as you mentioned, it's, you might have a story about a matchup, you know, got this Cinderella thing. I mean, there's like, this is what to almost like you're giving people what to watch for if, you know, if you're, if you care, um, type thing. Um, but covering it as a game, uh, when you, the associated press and there's any gazillion other player, you just watch it with your own eyes on television. Um, it's, um, I don't know. It's, it's a weird thing. If I were a sports yeah. editor, I think it's something that I would have to have a discussion with my reporters about is, and, and also take a look at the numbers. I, I'd be curious to know what the, the Buffalo news numbers are for the NCAA tournament. And it's different for the athletic because we appeal to a national audience. So I can look at our numbers from when I've covered the NCAA tournament in Buffalo, but that's traffic is coming from Providence fans or it's coming from, you know, wherever. Um, I don't know if you're, if you're a fan of the Providence Friars when they were here last time, you're probably not going to check out what the Buffalo news has. You have your own paper, you know, the, the Providence journal is there. Uh, the, your TV stations are there. So I wonder what, I, I what, I think it depends what on juice the comes line. out of the squeeze. It depends on the storylines and some of, I mean, you just, you mentioned Providence. Uh, Providence had, when they were here for the NCAA tournament, their best player in the backcourt was born in Buffalo. His father had played at Buffalo State College. Ed Cooley had been a coach that was known locally because he coached in the MAC. There were two coaches from the MAC. The MAC was hosting the NCAA tournament. There were local connections. And, and then, you know, you go to an NCAA tournament and number one seed Villanova loses or Bob Knight coaches is what turns out to be his last game in Indiana. And that becomes a bit of national history that happens on local Sure. Uh, ground. So I think you you just kind of got to go there and hope to find the right storylines and the right stories that resonate. 
and that's maybe that's not writing about the guy that wins the golf tournament, but maybe there's another aspect of the golf tournament that makes it worth the coverage back home in Buffalo. Yeah. When I covered the women's uh, uh, U S open, when it was out there, I don't know how many years ago this would have been. Maybe it was Oh four or Oh five, because it might've been lockout or maybe I was covering just cause it was the summer and it was Sabres off season. But I did a, did a feature on Hillary Lunky who, uh, she won the U.S. Open once and never won again. And it was one of those deals where how the hell did she win it? And how do you cope with, you know, it was so it was a little bit of a. Like, but again, uh, does the Buffalo News, did they give a damn who Hillary Lunky was, you know, especially at that time? And granted, we're on the Internet at the time. But if you're a big golf fan, are you scouring? Probably at the time, Yahoo, not even Google, uh, you're Yahooing. uh Hillary Lunky stories out of the Buffalo news. Probably not, but no, I'd be interested. Again, I'm interested. It, I'd, I'd love to know what the numbers are for things like that. Um, which is probably why the Buffalo news doesn't cover the bandits. Even though a lot of people go to the games and there's interest, my guess is it doesn't move their needle. I mean, that's absolutely why every, news outlet that's not at the Bandits game tonight would say they're not at the Bandits because it doesn't draw the right audience online. And some of the television news stations will, you know, show highlights and acknowledge the game in a different way because I think there's maybe some people at home that care to know whether the Bandits won or lost, but the intensity of coverage and the information that goes online and then gets consumed, you know, the, the market demand is just not there. It's It seems to be a case where everybody that wants bandits news is going to be at that building watching the bandits. I don't think that's true, but that is what some of the data might reflect. Jonah, thanks for this. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll convene um, probably on a bar stool somewhere at some point. Uh, but if not, then uh, right back here uh, next week on Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. CTBK is more than just a full service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara communities through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2022 to help keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400 and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. We'll